You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. A big part of what makes our show special is you, our listeners. That's why we'd like your help to plan for our future by filling out a short survey. Your responses will help us understand who's listening, what kinds of content our audience is looking for, and hopefully how we can reach even more people. Go to vox.com survey. That's vox.com slash survey. The academic concept of collective behavior is used in fields like sociology to understand how large groups of humans or animals interact without any clear leader. Sometimes these interactions can be harmless, like a crowd doing a wave at a soccer game, or incredibly harmful, like the stock market crashing. Collective behavior can also help us understand how we as a society are reforming because of new technologies. A new research paper published in a prestigious science journal argues that the way we use social media every day is having unprecedented effects which can be dire on our society as a whole. Like the ability to rapidly spread misinformation about COVID-19 or the U.S. elections. Academics across very different fields say that we should be treating this like a crisis discipline akin to climate change. I spoke with two authors of the paper, Mirta Galasik, professor of human social dynamics at the Santa Fe Institute, and Jay Van Bavel, associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at NYU. Here's some of our conversation. So, Mirta, what question did you all want to answer in this paper? What was really the problem that you were trying to understand along with your peers on this paper? So we really wanted to see how the modern communication technology changes our uh, social worlds and whether uh, something has fundamentally changed and whether we are perhaps in a crisis situation where we don't know what actually is going on, but we feel that we need to do something quickly to, um, to manage our systems better to avoid potential disasters. And what does it mean to be in a crisis situation? Can you explain what that means? So that means that... Uh, this is a problem that we need to urgently solve, but we are not sure yet how. And we need to put, if you wish, all hands on deck to understand what's going on. Similar to perhaps climate uh, change crisis, we feel that we are in a similar situation in social systems today. So that's interesting, right? The idea is that this needs to be treated with the same sense of sort of urgency among academics as climate change. Uh, and and so you looked into it, and what did you find? What were kind of the results? I, I would say that at this point in the research, there's not a lot of certainty. There's a lot of hints of things that are going badly. <laughs> um, our paper is kind of an urgent call to study these things at a bigger scale and then think about what we might do about them. We're seeing spikes in misinformation. We're seeing increases in polarization in studies. We're seeing all kinds of foreign actors enter the sphere of spreading misinformation. And so these are the types of things that are freaking people out. And, and we're not the first people to freak out. I mean, journalists have been covering this beat really well 
for the last, I would say, four or five years. And I, you know, in many ways, the science is lagging because science is slower. We have to get more data. We have to have you know, stronger grounds for the conclusions before we can draw them. And so um, we're, we're sluggish and mobilizing around this space. And Jay, can you talk a little bit about how um, our collective kind of psychological behavior on on the internet, on social media, how that may contribute to some kind of disruption of collective social dynamics? Yeah, I mean, to me, the biggest factor here is that that there's interactions between individuals and technology that we don't understand. So we have these very primitive brains developed in, you know, in a very ancient environment that look nothing like the one that we live in today and certainly not the one that occurs online. And then we have this technology uh, engineered in ways to like maximize our engagement and capture our attention. And so because our psychology is attuned to certain things like, uh, for example, conflict, uh, you know, group identity, it can be exploited in ways that can amplify things like polarization in societies, um, can make it much more appealing to share misinformation. You know, it might make people uh, less willing to support democratic institutions. It might make people uh, less trustworthy of uh medical interventions like vaccines, especially or even during a pandemic where, you know, uh, millions of lives have been taken from us. And so that is the conundrum that we're in, is that we have these very primitive brains and we have this very uh, godlike technology. And so, Jay, you know, it's clear that some people out there are definitely getting misinformation about things like, say, uh, the COVID-19 vaccines online, right? But do we know if misinformation has actually increased on the whole uh, you know, even pre-internet, there's been vaccine hesitancy and misinformation about it. How do we know if if the volume of this has increased and by how much? So th- there isn't necessarily an overall uh, measurable increase in, um, you know, belief in conspiracy theories. Um, but what might be happening is that the way it gets transmitted is different. If you think of an individual uh, who is spreading conspiracy theories, you know, for most of human history, they could have spread it to the people around them. Now the scope and scale of who they can spread it to has changed. So all it does is takes, you know, someone to set up a YouTube channel and uh, create some social media platforms or a blog or something, and they can immediately start disseminating to hundreds or thousands of people or, or many more. And then the other thing I think about it that has changed is that it's easier to monetize misinformation. And this happened in the 2016 presidential election where you had, you know, people who weren't necessarily political realize it's incredibly profitable to spread political misinformation and they could, you know, generate a six figure income, you know, living somewhere halfway across the world like Macedonia, making money off the spread of misinformation. And so Again, it's hard to measure this, you know, if general beliefs have changed, but it's also possible that the type and nature of misinformation has changed. I think one kind of end result we see sometimes with uh, discussion around the effects of social media is the idea that this is overall contributing to just polarization, right? Political polarization more broadly. But then you hear defenders of technology, uh, you know, people like Mark Zuckerberg say, Political polarization has always existed. We're just seeing it reflected in social media. Sort of the chicken and egg argument, right? How do you know that this isn't something that would have sort of happened anyway, maybe not at such a wide scale, but that there would still be this kind of underlying polarization in society regardless of the internet? Um, so that's a great question. And, and there turns out there's research on this. So um, Zuckerberg might argue that 
you know, social media has an in- increased polarization because it's been around for a while and it's been increasing for a while. And he's right about that. Um, but now polarization in the U.S. is at a 40-year high. And uh, studies have basically taken people and paid them to take a few-week break from Facebook. And they randomly assign them to either go off Facebook for a few weeks or just stay on it and do what they normally do. And what they find is that polarization dramatically drops if you take people off Facebook. In fact, the effect size for this was quite huge. They found that it was about 40% of the magnitude of the polarization that occurred over the last couple decades could be entirely reduced if you just simply took people off Facebook for a month. Jay, another important defense of social media is that platforms like Facebook and Twitter can be places where people end up sharing new ideas that aren't mainstream, that mainstream media gatekeepers like myself uh, might, might not have said, and those ideas end up being right. So, for example, people like Zainab Tuvekci were sounding the alarm on the pandemic really early, largely on Twitter, and this was back in February 2020, far ahead of the CDC or the World Health Organization and most journalists. So what do you say to that, to the idea that social media is actually um, allowing correct information that might otherwise not make it to the public as well? Yeah, so I think social media has a huge function in in sharing important information and perspectives that aren't normally heard. And it turns out that study I mentioned where uh, social media, going off social media, uh, reduces polarization. They also found that it reduced uh, news knowledge. So there's kind of a double-edged sword here. You know, it has some positive consequences, some negative consequences. And I just want to kind of chime in and say that it's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of how social dynamics work. It's not that people's beliefs are static and formed, you know, in childhood, and now they just have a megaphone to project those beliefs that they always had. They, of course, they're they're formed largely under influence of what they observe in their social environments. And now internet provides in this modern communications enormous social environments, enables spreads of all kinds of information much faster. And so it's not that people were always haters and now they can finally express it. And maybe some did have radical attitudes, but many just follow what they see. And now you can see many more things that were otherwise hidden, that were not expressed. And, and so people learn from each other, uh, even fringe ideas in the society and that they become something that they were not before. And so... Social science is only now starting to understand the complexity of, of, uh, of all the interactions with our social networks. And this is kind of related, but what do you say to the people who are skeptical that this is even a crisis and who just say that in general, when there is a transformational new technology coming out, like when the printing press first came out, for example, that plenty of people were panicked, had similar concerns to the points that you're bringing up now about misinformation or uh, people who are not really experts being able to to say things quickly to everyone, and that now those alarms seem silly, and that overall, you know, the printing press, I think most people would argue, was helpful to democracy and society at large. So what do you say to that, to the skeptics who think that we're just being alarmist because this is so new and, and we don't fully understand uh, the positive force overall that this is having? Hey, printing press absolutely have, had uh, enormous positive influence. But, you know, my favorite example of printing press actually could some historians would argue that it contributed to the spread of uh, witch hunt, for example. Why? Because, you know, before, you know, beliefs about witches and so on, they were mostly confined to gossip that was confined to relatively narrow social circles. And then in 15th century, people started to publish books about uh, witches. 
And they started to publish pictures of witches. And now even people who couldn't read could see what the witch looks like. And those who could read could understand, okay, how to, how to recognize the witch and how to torture the witch to, to, <laughs> to admit things. And so, uh, you know, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of women were tortured and burned on a stake. Uh, not only, of course, because of printing press, but it, it certainly um, accelerated, spread the, the, this fear uh, and, the, and the subsequent violent reactions. I want to say that we're not calling for a ban on social media or technology. What we're calling on is more understanding that requires people from all these different disciplines to come together and build a field to understand it because we're starting to see these negative effects. And I think I tend to be somebody who's extremely optimistic that if we understood what was going on and, and we didn't just have to take you know, Mark Zuckerberg's word for it that it's not increasing polarization, then we can figure out as a society how to address it. What, you know, what trade-offs are we willing to make to optimize the benefits and minimize the harms? How do you think that your paper could change the way people think about technology? And what do you hope that people will take away from it? Um, I think the thing that I hope that people take away from, from it is that the development and scale of these technologies has occurred rapidly and is having massive unintended consequences that have some parallels to other kind of collective behavior issues, uh, as, as Myrta gave some great examples of, including things like climate change. And therefore, we are at a pivotal moment where we need to invest resources to understand what those consequences are, because I think most of us still don't understand them. There's huge debates in the sphere of the misinformation research world about what are the consequences, how much information misinformation is being spread. Who's doing it? How can we combat it? What are the best interventions? Um, and because of the fact that there's debate in each of these areas, and up until recently, there's been very little research in these areas and very little uh, institutional support. And, and now there's like, we have people studying it in 10 different fields. We need those people to come together in a concerted way to understand it. And the other thing is, because some of these consequences appear to be happening rapidly and at huge scale, I think we need to uh, address it quickly. Um, this is not something that we can probably sit on and ponder for 10 years, like a lot of other uh, issues in the social and behavioral sciences. Um, this is something because of the scale and the rapid technological change and the unintended consequences that we need to treat it more like a crisis if we're going to understand it and address these issues. Then Mirta, I'm curious also to hear what you think. I agree with everything Jay said, and I'm hoping that this will be a call to think of, okay, as, as I started to mention, like, what institutions do we need? But this is something that, you know, we don't have to blindly experiment. We can create computational models of our system. We can try out, you know, test different policies in these models. We can, we can have a really informed discussion. And, but we need all hands on deck. We need people from other sciences who went through this. We need all kinds of social sciences, and we need to start working on it now. That was my conversation with Mirta Kalasik and Jay Van Babel. If you want to find out more about the effects of social media on our society, you can read their research paper by checking out our show notes. 